Happy New Year and welcome to Fully Scored. I was going to start this episode by singing Old Lang Syne, but then I realised I don't actually know the words apart from a few la's and da's and durs here and there. Um, so I'll have to deprive you of that this year. Sorry, maybe next year I can start that off. In fact, does anyone know the words to Old Lang Syne? If you do, uh, without cheating and Googling it, then uh, do comment on our most recent Facebook post. It'd be interesting to see if it's just me that's a bit thick or if nobody really knows the words. Anyway, enough of that. Welcome to Season 4. I can't quite believe that we're starting off our fourth year of Fully Scored now. It's been an excellent three years so far, and hopefully this season won't disappoint. Now, of course, for the new season, we do have some new segments. Band manager and sparsely scored. I'll explain more about those in due course, don't worry. Also, fans will be pleased to know that favourites Bandmastermind and Arid Island won't be going anywhere for now. Anyway, it's always a delight to introduce our guest for the podcast, and this episode is no exception. It was a real privilege to speak to internationally renowned trombonist Dudley Bright. And to kick season four off with a bang, we haven't just got the one legendary soloist and performer, but two. For this episode's analysis, we welcome back Derek Kane, who's going to take us on a musical mystery tour of Dean Goffin's Arise, My Soul, Arise. But first, back to just before Christmas, in the midst of the World Cup, I spoke to Dudley Bright. Well, Dudley, thank you ever so much for joining us once again on Fully Scored. It's great to have you a few episodes ago in our RSA 100 episode doing an analysis of Romans 8. Have you been keeping well since? Uh, apart from a, a quick uh, visit to the dentist, yes. <laughs> Fantastic. Great. Well, thank you ever so much for giving up your time to joining us today. I'm really looking forward to chatting to you and finding a bit more about your life as a musician. So what was it that initially piqued your interest in making music? Uh, well, it's uh, growing up in the Salvation Army as a as a child. Um, I seem to have come full circle because um, right the the earliest my earliest Salvationist memories was at the Regent Hall, which is where I soldier now. So I've come all the way round. Um, but in those days, uh, for a child, uh, there was music all around. There was music at the core, music at school. There was music at home, uh, and. Uh, it it seemed perfectly natural um, that uh, music would come into your life. You just expected to pick up a, a cornet or a drum or something and, and play it, and everybody did. In school, uh, we were taken to live concerts by the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra. Um, so it wasn't just army. Uh, I was thrilled to, to hear those things, and it just coincided with the, about the time when I began to play the trombone so I was listening for the trombone players being in the army it's at that age what it does is to link music to an emotional uh, response and and the idea that music means something and that there's something very special and as later it doesn't have to be uh, religious uh, Christian music uh, overtly there's still something said and to be felt from music so when you first picked up an instrument, was it the trombone or did you have a progression towards the trombone? Well, it was expected that I would play the cornet. Um, and by now we, we'd moved to Wealdstone Corps from the Regent Hall. Um, 
and I was given a cornet and uh, my father was a, a a very fine cornet player um, and I, I learnt that sound that he used to make and the, all the exercises he practiced it was it was all around the house so I was given a cornet um, but I just was a disappointment my, my brother also my elder brother he was a cornet player and he was doing very well and um, I wasn't and it just so happened that my my father was the band leader and uh, needed a horn player so I was given a horn and, and I was really rather good at that um, and that that's how I came to be a horn player oh I'm not a horn player am I I'm a trombone player um, and I was sent to the Royal Academy of Music to audition uh, for the Saturday morning school um, but uh, they looked in horror at my tenor horn which I played to them and they said you can't play that thing here well what were we going to do so obviously they would like me to attend regularly Saturday mornings but not on the tenor horn and they said well it could be the trombone or the French horn now the French horn the idea of a French horn in the Salvation Army then those days apologies to French horn players who might be listening but it just didn't fit in um, and they were quite expensive uh, and the trombone was much cheaper and still is uh, so it was decided that I would I would play the trombone and I had this peculiar situation where at that time uh, brass bands were still in, in high pitch nearly a semitone higher uh, and so I had a, a set of sleeves that would fit on my, onto my trombone to make it longer so on Saturday mornings I was in flat pitch as we called it and uh, in on Sundays I was in sharp pitch I would take the sleeves off and play in sharp pitch and so that's how I came to play the trombone in terms of my musical studies the National Youth Orchestra was um, hugely influential I, I tried going to band camp a couple of years but that seemed actually quite dangerous to me um, I went to Sunbury Court National Junior um, band camp and um, I got knocked out by a golf club Blimey. Uh, on that uh, and uh, the next year I went to Tilney Hall and uh, nearly drowned in the the, um, the swimming pool so it seemed a safer thing to go and join the National Youth Orchestra Fantastic so we, we all know that obviously the journey to becoming one of the finest trombonists worldwide isn't something that just happens overnight um, you know it takes a lot of practice and dedication to the instrument when was it that you realised that you wanted to pursue a career professionally as a musician or was it a gradual transition through those experiences and influences that you've just spoken about? It was a lot later than, than for a lot of people because um, I was going to the Royal Academy Saturday mornings and uh, um, uh, it wasn't until um, I decided that I, I couldn't do anything else but do music. I had to do music. Um, and uh, people at the core and people said oh you don't want to be a professional it's so insecure um, it's not a good life um, if you're a freelance you have to hang around pubs which for a salvationist was a no-no but you had to hang around pubs to to pick up work um, so I thought no I won't be a professional I'll be a, a teacher a music teacher because that's all I can do um, and then gradually that changed so I, I thought well if I'm going to be a teacher I'll, I, I should do the best I can trombone wise and I, I decided to go to Guildhall 
um, to study with Dennis Wick. Um, and while I was there, he used to get me into play with the LSO every now and again. And uh, my ideas, ideas began to change. I thought, well, if I can get a job, um, I'll, I'll be a professional, but otherwise I'll be a teacher because I didn't want to be hanging around pubs waiting for freelance work. Um, and, and then it just happened. Um, I thought, well, I, I'm not going to get a job unless I do some auditions. So while I was still at college, I, I, I did three auditions and the third one was for the Scottish National Orchestra. And uh, after going and playing with them, uh, doing a trial, as we say in the business, um, I was offered the job in the Scottish National Orchestra, principal trombone. I was still studying at Guildhall. Um, so there are, they, the, the decision was made for me, as it were. I, I like to think that the decision came from above. Uh, uh, my life has been directed uh, as, along certain paths. Uh, I told my teacher, Dennis Wick, uh, that I've got this job in Scotland and he said oh well um, there's a job for you here if you want so I said well what do you mean he said well the, the board have just decided that we can increase the trombone section to four in the LSO so um, yes full circle again my first job was the LSO um, in fact and um, that's how it came about can you tell us about some of your other orchestral appointments too, please? Yes. Well, the, the most recent LSO membership, it, it, to me, seems just like a coda for my career. Uh, there was a lot more of it that went on. So, um, I, as I said, I, I got this job um, playing in the London Symphony Orchestra. It was, it was called an associate. And I did quite a bit of work there, but it was still basically freelancing, but with the London Symphony Orchestra. And uh, this didn't suit me. I had this uh, feeling that I really wasn't really good enough because I'd held these guys there in uh, in high esteem. And there I was as being part of them. And I didn't feel that I matched up. And I actually got quite depressed about what I was going to do. Um, and, and then I was discussing with my, my then fiancé, uh, what I might do and I said well there was a job going in the Halle Orchestra uh, some time back and I wonder if it's still going and we said well you you could try and find out um, and, th and this is a, another thing when you think well is this something that God wanted me to do and uh, without me doing anything I received a phone call from the Halle Orchestra saying uh, they've got this job going um, recently vacated with Chris by Chris Mowat, who is uh, some of his uh, compositions are in the, uh, the the journals, Salvation Army journals. Um, and they said, "Well, you know, if you're interested, would you like to come and do an audition on Thursday?" And I said, "Well, okay, we'll give it a go." Uh, went up to Manchester that Thursday. Uh, I played to them, and they said, "Fine. When can you start?" So there I was following Chris Mowat and actually Maisie Ringham uh, in, into the same job. And I, I had five very happy years and basically learning my trade and uh, sitting in the first chair in an orchestra, um, playing a wide range of repertoire. Um, but uh, going back to the, the golf club incident at Sunbury Court, um, the person on the other end of the golf club was one Kevin Hathaway who um, uh, became a lifelong friend 
Uh, it doesn't seem a good start to become a lifelong friend, but we are. And uh, it was I would bump into him every now and again at the uh, Manchester Grammar School, where we were both teachers. He taught percussion, and uh, I taught trombone. And he said, "Ah, oh, he said apparently the Philharmonia have got a job going." And I said, "Really?" He said, "I'm, I'm going to uh, Japan with them, and I'll, I'll try and find out what's happening." So just on the off chance, I wrote to them and said. Um, I hear you've got a job going. Is this true? And uh, could I throw my hat in the ring? So, uh, um, yeah, they invited me to play with the orchestra for three weeks, uh, which was uh, fantastic. We played uh, all the even-numbered Mahler symphonies under the conductor, Lauren Marzell, which was something else. Um, and I actually said to the principal trumpet, look, I said, uh, I don't mind if I don't get the job. That has just been so special for me. Um, well, the the phone call came uh, a few weeks later, and I was offered the job. So I came back to London, and I was in the uh, spent uh, twenty two happy years in the Philharmonia Orchestra, which is a, a very fine orchestra in London as well. Um, but the London Symphony Orchestra opportunity came along, um, and I wasn't uh, dissatisfied with the Philharmonia. It just seemed that uh, that would be a good time to to make a move and not to rest on my laurels and uh, again uh, I was in touch with them uh, the, the, this idea of playing a trial when you're when you're going for an orchestral job is quite general um, often auditions are held but the very best ones uh, asked to play with the orchestra particularly in this country um, to see how they do with getting along with people and actually in the uh, concert situation but they said can you come along and do this um, children's concert so I said, why? And they said, well, we've got um, Ravel's Bolero in that children's concert. And uh, some people may know that's got the famous trombone solo in it. So I, I said, yeah, OK, I'll do that. So and the day before, it's very quite hard, hard to practice because if you play it very, it's quite high. If you play it very much, you get quite tired. So um, the day before the children's concert, I actually played it once every hour on the hour. Uh, as my preparation um, to to do that and uh, the day came and I sat there and the, all the children there and the um, the uh, conductor leading the children's concert he said so obviously we're not going to play all of Ravel's Bolero and we're going to cut from figure this to figure that and uh, the trombone solo got cut oh no <laughs> <laughs> So uh, I still got the job. They offered me the job, and uh, I was delighted to uh, join them in 2001. Fantastic. Thank you for that. Some really fascinating stories and insights there. So not only have you had a career as an orchestral trombone player, but also you've performed many ensembles as well, such as the London Trombone Sound, the Wallace Collection, and, of course, Salvation Army Bands, like the International Staff Band, New York Staff Band. Do you enjoy playing with small ensembles such as those as much as playing with a full symphony orchestra? Um, probably more. Right. Probably more. It's it's a it's a different thing, but um, and I I the the orchestra playing is actually quite a a big commitment, and there's there's often not a lot of time to do other things. So uh, the, those things you mentioned are very much one off. Um, but I think one of the 
one of the things I enjoyed about joining the NSA was there there were more opportunities to uh, to get out and do other things. Um, and particularly the LSO's brass ensemble. Through my career, on average, I've visited um, Japan every two or three years. And uh, sometimes in the middle of those tours, we would do a brass ensemble concert, a brass quintet, or go to the embassy, in the British embassy. Um, but uh, more recently, we would go as a brass quintet uh, on the years that the whole orchestra didn't, and uh, enjoyed playing the, the music and having that more responsibility of a, a, an individual player, being able to hear yourself and uh, having the flexibility, um, listening to other people, not having to rely on a conductor. And, and of course, in, in some of that, we I played with Phil Cobb. Uh, I think we always enjoyed playing together. I think, I wonder why. Uh, solo playing uh, is a different thing, I think. And I would say, for someone whose basic work is playing in a symphony orchestra, it's a bit like being a truck driver. It's heavy duty. Uh, and t to come out of that and be a soloist is, is not to say being a soloist is ever easy, but it's it's really quite hard to, to change over. Um, and I, I always found solo playing really stressful. Um, apparently I didn't look it. Um, <laughs> playing big orchestral works actually practically speaking the embouchure gets thicker the the muscles get uh, thicker uh, and that it's good for playing heavy stuff big chords you're actually often being like a, a big organ pipe the brass section of a big orchestra is called on to play these massive chords and to do anything agile and flexible is is quite a different thing it's Bit like jumping into a Ferrari you're gonna spin straight away um, and it takes time so yeah that's <laughs> that's the that's that angle anyway some people actually can do it appear to be able to do it really well but that's how it seemed to me anyway and I have to say having heard you as a soloist a few times back with the Birmingham Citadel band at the old Adrian Bart Hall a few years ago and also at Hendon Highlights as well a few years ago. Your control, I can't remember the name of the piece off by heart, but it was a slow melody that you played with. And I've never experienced being sat so close to someone, but the sound to your last note just fizzled into nothing. You couldn't tell where the note stopped. I just remember both times being absolutely stunned by that control over the instrument. Oh, thank you, Matthew. Uh, that's like yeah. People sometimes talk about single notes, so that's... <laughs> uh, yeah, I think you're talking about Walk With Me. That would be the one. Absolutely. Yeah, which is a great favourite of mine. It's a, a lovely piece by Ray Stemlallen. So let's talk a little bit more about some of the other um, parts of your musical career. So you currently serve on the faculty at the Royal Academy of Music as a professor of trombone and having also previously taught at the Guildhall School of Music. So from a pedagogical point of view, I'm sure there may be many trombonists listening to this episode in particular, is there any advice that you could give to those that are listening? Uh, lots of advice. How long have you got? Oh, three hours? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Of course, playing the trombone, it's, it, it, there's one thing that's different in playing the trombone as to playing any, any other brass instrument. Uh, you've guessed it. It's the slide. And uh, it's often kind of neglected 
uh, it's just sort of played you know you just move the slide and you instead of pressing buttons on the top you move the slide into different places uh, and uh, but it's really does affect the sound as to to a good slide technique but also that dreaded way of avoiding the glissando how do trombone players avoid the glissando I mean obviously if it's written then you play a glissando but moving the slide and the note continuing is going to give you a smear so how do we get rid of it well basically uh, a, a glissando a, a slur should be the same regardless of any which way you do it now Matthew you won't understand this uh, <laughs> you understand harmonic slurs so slurring between say in C and G or on the same fingering on the same slide position uh, that's exactly the same but for trombones when you move the slide and change change pitch that's the difficulty so the first one is where you move the slides again what we say against the slide the slide is going out but the notes going up uh, and that's that's not never going to produce a glissando but it can produce an ugly little bump so the aim should be to make that sound just as good as a as a harmonic slur and it is possible I think some people don't think it's possible but it is uh, and, and the next one is that where you move the slide in the same direction as the note so if you're moving the slide down and the note is going down say C C to A and the danger that if you're not careful there's going to be a glissando <clears throat> and again you should try and aim to make that sound exactly the same as a harmonic slur um, what is not often realized uh, is is that coordination is so important uh, it's often mentioned right you need to use a soft tongue okay and you have to de develop the right kind of soft tongue so you can move the slide without making a glissando but you also have to get the coordination right now if you think of playing the trombone you play one note and you play another you play the note or you move the slide and then you play the, the next one but with this kind of technique you need to uh, move the slide after you've tongued that sounds a bit wrong really but it's not when you the slide has got to its final resting place that's too late because the glissando has happened so I often can encourage people to think of making the making the tongue the soft tongue to start with and then move the slide. In actual fact, it's while the slide is moving. So it's during the slide. And yes, of course, try and move the slide quite quickly and gently and not shake the trombone around. But that's probably one of the hardest things and one of the things that marks out the trombone as being different to all you other valve people. How's that? Absolutely great. Thank you for that. It's fascinating. And you're right, I don't understand most of the stuff you've been saying, but but that I did. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shall I say it again? <laughs> uh, only joking, of course. But yeah, great advice. Hopefully that'll be useful for someone listening. So not only do you have a legacy as being one of the finest trombonists internationally, but also you've written a considerable legacy of compositions, both for Salvation Army bands and further afield. And I'm sure we could do a whole episode uh, speaking about your music. But it was just a couple of you pieces. You wouldn't want to, really, oh, no. <laughs> maybe. Who knows in the future? <laughs> uh, but there's a couple of pieces I'd just like to touch upon now. The first of those pieces is Pursuing Horizons. Now, I, I don't think, for me, as a 15 or 16-year-old, at hearing it live at the ISB 120, I quite fully appreciated the piece. But coming fresh back to it, more, well, rather more recently... It's an absolutely epic piece of music, full of musical, technical demands and deeply academic writing, I think I'd say. 
But I think this piece also has quite an interesting backstory as to how it was written. Could you tell us a little bit about the story and the piece itself, please? The origin of it was was to do with the LSO. Now, uh, in those days, the LSO used to run a course for um, young people um, in the summer, July, um, where they would be tutored by the pr- principals of the LSO. And it went in years, so one year it would be strings, the next year it would be wind, the next year brass. And it was, I think that this was the first one, the the, the brass, uh, brass Academy it was called, LSO Brass Academy. I said, well, I'll write something. I hate, I hate the idea of six second trumpets or six second cornets and all these people playing the same note. And I thought everybody should have their own part. Well, we had 40 players. So, crumbs. <laughs> very quickly... Uh, I said, oh, I'll write this piece. And um, to, to my mind, I thought, well, it, it, it doesn't matter what it's like, really, because it'll never, give a, never get ever get played again. So uh, I very quickly wrote this piece for 40 players, um, divided into three groups. We played it, and uh, it was a, a good learning experience for, for them. And, and it gave me the chance to kind of be orchestral, uh, like treat those 40 players as a, a big brass orchestra uh, and the, using the way composers use textures um, and different um, kinds of sounds from different parts of the orchestra, groups playing against each other. I sent a CD uh, of it to, to Steve Cobb, uh, who liked it very much, um, and said to me, can you arrange that for a traditional brass band? We've got this uh, concert coming up the Epic Brass 2 up at the Sage Gateshead uh, next to uh, Black Dyke and uh, he said that would be just the sort of piece uh, that we need and I said oh, I don't think so it's not an army piece I said tell you what Steve I'll write you a piece like it but that's got some kind of overt spiritual idea and I have an idea of the kind of piece it's going to be and I wrote then a piece called Cost of Freedom which the ISB played and you can see it on the DVD uh, of that event Anyway, I thought it had gone away and Steve contacted me again. He said, look, we've got this ISB 120 and he said, I really would like to use your piece. Can you do it? I said, basically said, be on your head, Steve. <laughs> because I was, I, I said, I don't know how it can work. Um, and what I did was to arrange it for one brass band, uh, a normal brass band. And... Uh, then I said, Let, let's sit down and work out how we can use, I think, were the, was it 280 players at the ISB 120? Would have been close. I'm sure. How can we, yeah, can, rather than everybody playing all the time, how we can divide it up. Um, and uh, we, we looked at it and went through the score and said, well, maybe that would be too, too difficult and complex for the whole group. Uh, the ISB could kind of take that bit or another bit. And then were the big moments where everybody joined in. So it was basically the ISB and then behind the ISB, the rest of the, the players were divided into two, left and right. Fantastic. And just one other piece that I'd like to uh, just touch upon whilst we're discussing your music. And it's a trombone solo, Life's Command, as recorded by yourself on the ISB CD Supremacy. Did you write it for yourself in mind? One of my favourite composers is William Walton. And I thought... If Walton had written a trombone solo, what would it sound like? I, I kind of wished he'd, he'd written a trombone concerto, but he never did. 
But I thought, well, next best thing, what about the violin concerto? And I loved Walton's violin concerto. So I thought, I'd like to write a piece that sounded like Walton's violin concerto for the trombone and brass band. So to begin with, there's this original theme, which represents me, if you like. It's a person. It, this music to me is very personal. Um, it's going through life. And then the band comes in and, and asks the question, as it were, to follow. Will you follow Jesus? Will you follow Jesus? And uh, and the uh, follow, follow, that little shape is used as a, lo a lot of material. And the band keeps on harping on with that little shape and you can hear that little shape. But the soloist doesn't get it, still carries on doing his own thing, playing his own tune. Um, and then it comes to, like a, it, very much in the Eternal Quest, it comes to a long cadenza for the for the soloist but it's the that the, the the subject me if you like wrestling with like you know if i'm gonna follow him it's got to be for everything it's it's not got to be held back uh and why are you going to do that why are you going to do what seems like a sacrifice uh and eventually the idea came to me yes i love him because i love him more than all the world besides and the trombone play plays this tune and uh, that's kind of yeah you will follow if you love me if you love if you love me you will keep my commands he said and so there's a joyous ending where the solo is now joining in with the follow material and he's got the idea and so it's quite personal and uh, one of the pieces that I'm most pleased with Fantastic. So I was going to ask you about how your faith has been shaped by your music making over the years, but actually I think you've answered that through the piece and actually that being a sort of personal testimony um, of your life, your music and your faith all coming together as one. Well. well, I would say I'd just like to say that um, there's a book by C.S. Lewis called Surprised by Joy and it's his spiritual uh, autobiography and I, I've read it a few times I don't totally understand it it's how he came to faith but on the last page he talks about how he'd been an enthusiast of uh, North, North mythology and he loved the Wagner operas and for him that there was something he was searching for something in there and uh, um, then he realised that God was God he didn't want to he didn't want to understand it but he did um, and on the last page he said so what if he, he called it joy that 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 feeling that he got from uh, his his favorite uh, interests he said well what of joy does that still exist and he said well actually it turns out that it was a signpost to signpost to where I want to be uh, and to finding God and and I think that's that's has to be true of our music and uh, it has to be a signpost it can show people where to go it's not an, a, an end of journey in itself it's it's saying yeah this is the way and sometimes that can be very profound but it's not the end of the journey it's just point pointers and uh, let's let's hope that uh, some of my music might point people to God but it's not the end <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thank you for sharing that uh, insight. Now to change the mood uh, 
quite abruptly. It wouldn't be a fully scored interview without some quirky quickfire questions. So uh, I've got a few for you, hopefully. Yeah, um, dreading this one. Yeah, <laughs> most guests I think probably are. <laughs> we'll start off with a couple more sensible ones, but maybe not the easiest. Have you got a favourite Salvation Army composer? Uh, it's got to be one of the two, uh, RSA or Les Condon. I think slightly on balance, Les Condon, slightly more um, natural. RSA was hugely studied and he he's, he really knew everything, but uh, perhaps Les was more from the heart. Fantastic. Now, to drill even further, have you got a favourite Salvation Army band piece? Well, that's going to be... Um, uh, Call of the Righteous. Fantastic. Never fails, fails to thrill. Absolutely. Great work. Now, here's a hypothetical question for you. I'd like you to imagine that you've opened up a restaurant called Bright's Burgers. What would be your signature uh, Bright's Burger? What would the toppings be? Um, well, I don't know. A bit of bacon and a um, bit of tomato sauce. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> what about a side then? A side dish to accompany it? I like a good coleslaw. Nice, excellent, refreshing. Uh, have you ever visited the West Midlands town of Dudley? Dudley? Uh, no, I haven't. Got quite. I've got a. Do- I've got a daughter that doesn't live that far away, but uh, I've seen signs to it. <laughs> excellent, that counts then. Have you got a least favourite symphony? Uh, yes, uh, this is a good one. Um, two really. Um, Tchaikovsky's Fourth Symphony. I've played it too much. Uh, it's followed me around. It was the first piece I ever played with the LSO when I was still at college. Uh, I played it at, uh, in the National Youth Orchestra. Played it at college. Uh, yeah, just too done, overdone in in my head. But uh, I don't like Caesar Frank's Symphony in D Minor. It just feels so syrupy to me. Yeah, <laughs> fair enough. Um, what is your favourite book of the New Testament? Um, I think Romans because there's always something else you can you can learn and obviously we talked about Romans 8 before um, uh, but it's it's the whole gospel in, in one book but uh, still plenty there to, to find out what does this really mean to me. Now we're recording this a couple of days before the uh, World Cup football final in Qatar. Uh, who do you think is going to win the final France or Argentina? Oh, Argentina, it's got to be. Okay, well, by the time this is released, we'll know. (laughs) Uh, If you could click your fingers and teleport to anywhere in the world right now, where would it be? Yeah, I I think it would be Japan. I think it would be Tokyo. Nice, fantastic. And final question you'll be pleased to know. What is your favourite concert hall worldwide? I would say, having played in a lot of great halls, I would say the Musikverein in Vienna. And it's the stage isn't that comfortable for the players, um, but it's when you, you you can play in various places and you can say, well, the, maybe the high re- register's a bit bright or it's a bit bass heavy, but in the Musikverein, it's nothing is exaggerated. Everything seems to me to sound as it should. Fantastic. Thank you for that, indeed. Now, before we go and have our analysis and then welcome you back for Bandmaster Mind in a bit, we're introducing a new segment into Season 4 called B 
band manager. And we're going to ask every single guest that comes on to pick two players for a fantasy brass band. Uh, the idea isn't to have the best band in the world or to be competitive, but more about the memories and the significance of two players. And uh, when we've had a player picked, you can pick the exact seat that they'll sit in the band. That will be taken. And over the whole of Series 4, hopefully we'll build up this fantasy brass band. So Dudley, I'm going to ask you, if you had to pick two players for band manager and uh, choose their seats in a band, who would your two players be and why? Has this, has this got to be living or past? or no, it can be any, any Salvationist musicians, uh, living or past. Uh, yeah, you, you don't even oh, have to know. Okay. Well, I thought that if I, if I chose the first trombone, then nobody can put me there. <laughs> so I'm going to put Ian Hankey on first trombone. Okay. And then, because I love him dearly, my brother is going to be number three solo cornet, Julian. Fantastic. Thank you for those choices. We'll put those together on a little graph and uh, build a band as we go throughout the season. Thank you ever so much, Dudley, for your time speaking to us today. Thank you, Matthew. We look forward to speaking to you soon again for Band Mastermind. Thank you, Dudley, for your time. What an insight into an extraordinary life and career so far. We'll add your band manager choices into our Season 4 fantasy band shortly. Now it's time for our analysis of Dean Goffin's work, Arise, My Soul Arise, with Derek Kane. Well, Derek, thank you ever so much for joining us once again. Uh, Pleasure. Fully schools. And today we're going to be talking about a piece that you've chosen to look at from the festival series. Uh, would you like to introduce what we're going to be looking at in this analysis? Yeah, sure. The piece is uh, by Dean Goffin, by Captain Dean Goffin, as he was. Uh, the Prelude and Fugue, Arise, My Soul Arise. Um, published uh, January 1958. Fantastic. And there can't be many prelude and fugues published within the Salvation Army journals, can there? There are, there are fugal sections mm. in pieces, but with the title Prelude and Fugue, to my knowledge there is this one, and a piece called Towards the Victory by Kenneth Downey. Mm. So you chose this piece to look at. Why did you want to look at this specific piece? I think it's, uh, I think it's one of these iconic pieces in, in Salvation Army repertoire. Um, first of all, it it relates to classical music, of course, Prelude and Fugue being back to uh, J.S. Bach, uh, other composers since, of course. But um, the Prelude and Fugue gives us a little excursion, if you like, into uh, classical writing, I think. Mm. Um, I've always described this piece as a kind of piece of uh, Bach or piece of classical music or a piece of Mozart for band um, don't just think uh, brass band when you're, when you're playing or rehearsing this piece So could you give us a little bit of context into when this piece was written and what the journals may have looked like at that point to have this piece come along um, Well I mean Dean Goffin as we know didn't write loads and loads of pieces um, particularly for a festival series uh, but what he did write I think are iconic pieces um, Symphony of Thanksgiving um, My Strength, My Tower for example 
Um, but I think there's a kind of common thread between these pieces and this one. I think, uh, to my mind, they they give a very academic demonstration of music writing. Uh, born out by the title of uh, the Prelude in Fugue, but I think uh, if you look at other pieces, My Strength My Tower, for example, it's very academic in its makeup and its uh, structure. Um, so I think this piece would have would have stood out uh, when it was written um, to the other music that was coming out round about that uh, that time. Mm. So the tune is Darwell's. Could you tell us a little bit about that melody and perhaps some other facts <coughs> that you know about it? Yeah, it's, it's, got, it's a lovely melody. If you if you look at the shape of it, where it's got that rising uh, arpeggio movement. Um, I think it, it lends itself to to development, to variation. Uh, and, and if you look at the score, uh, which I'm looking at right now, the way he treats that opening uh, of, of, of Darwell's, it's Darwell's as some people know it. I think it's been printed as both over the years. Oh, yes, it's been printed with an E and also printed with an A. So um, a, a lovely tune and it just demands that uh, lovely treatment. It's a good tune to play, it's a good tune to sing. Mm-hmm. You know, that opening statement, that bam, 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 you know, it's a lovely shape. And of course, we get this all the way through. And if you look at the opening bars, bar one, bar two, bar three, bar four, bar five, bar six, bar seven, all follow the same pattern of that arpeggio movement of the first five notes of the tune. from a study point of view and that's a good thing to note then we get a little descending passage and then he's back to the same thing again uh, two bars later and we keep getting this repetition of the first five notes of uh, of Darwell's or Darwell's whichever you prefer <laughs> the tempos in this piece are an interesting discussion okay. uh, I think mm. um, not so much for the opening but certainly when we come to the come to the fugue section uh, I think the prelude uh, kind of speaks for itself, but also has some beautiful little counter melody, but also based on that opening fragment, uh, which is in quaver time, and then later on we have the little euphonium thing that comes in at section B, and then the cornets, in crotchet time. So uh, again, you've got that development already within a, as you say, within a very short space of time. The development of a prelude from a quaver movement, uh, graceful, into an even more graceful, legato, crotchet treatment of of the same motif, Mm. or same theme. Is there anything else musically we should be looking at in the section between those, in section A? Yeah, I think... um, in, in a piece like this, I mean, in music generally, we sometimes don't know what to do with staccato and particularly accented notes. There's a bit of a tradition when we see an accent, we play it as hard as possible. Um, but in a classical context, 
I don't think that would be the case. Uh, it's more of a push on the note rather than a harder tongue experience that we tend to associate with a, with a brass band. Especially in this graceful prelude movement. I think we shorten notes too much in Salvation Army brass band playing. Mm. I think often the notes get too short. And I think by lengthening a note you can achieve uh, a lot of things. You can, even, you can achieve a fullness of sound. You can even achieve an accent by just lengthening the note and, and making it stand out the texture rather than just by this always tonguing harder when we see an accent. Uh, but again, still with, with gracefulness and still with a bit of length. So we're not, we're playing you know, there's a difference of just pecking a note short and playing a note shorter. As I'll say, I'll say to groups, the shortest notes still have a note value. Mm. Okay, and I think that aspect can be brought out in this first uh, section with the accents and staccato. to section C where the music changes style a little bit. Could you talk us through this next section here? Yeah, and there's also a lift in tempo. We, we, we started the piece around 116 and I know it's all relative and it's all approximate. Uh, it wouldn't be right if we had every piece the same. There'd be no point of recording another version of uh, Beethoven 5 or Beethoven 9 if it was the same as every other one. <laughs> However, there is a, a lift here at section C uh, Score-wise, taking us from 116 to 132. So a little lift in tempo. The texture's still quite thin, though. Uh, you see there's no trombones playing, there's not many cornets playing to start with, and we've got this little mi middle band thing going on with a delicate euphonium in the background. Um, and it's a good example of where the you've got the quavers in the middle band against the quavers euphonium staccato. Okay, so I think full length for middle band, which lets the euphonium still play staccato, but not too short. Okay, but I would say play them delicate would be my take as Martin score. Uh, that would achieve the feeling of shortness uh, from the horns and the euphonium where they need to. There's one or two little lifts. I think they just need to be subtle. They don't need to be surging crescendos and decrescendos. I think it's just a little subtle lift uh, where the notes lift and fall back. Um, I often use an expression about folding back the dynamic, okay. which I quite like. Mm. You know, just fold back the dynamic. Don't, rather than just, oh, I need to get quieter. Because often what happens with a, a band, we see a crescendo, uh, we do get loud too soon, and a decrescendo, we do the same. We get too quiet too soon. We get too quiet too soon. Whereas the arts, the, the thought of folding back a decrescendo, uh, to me, gives a more uh, 
subtle approach to getting quieter. But uh, one aspect pointing out is the next bit coming up where we've got three bars of staccato crotchets for the whole band. Now it's three bars, in my view, of plucked strings. <laughs> mm. Okay? But still with a note value. And to play nine staccato crotchets in a row with every part, including percussion, is a challenge in my view. Mm. It's something that looks easy on the score. But you tr try and get all your cornets, all your horns, baritones, trombones, your phone and basses and percussion playing exactly nine notes in a row it becomes a challenge. And it's on a crescendo to the loudest part of the piece so far. You can guarantee with nine out of ten bars as well, that'll rush, won't it? That's Push the other thing. Closer together. Can you hold a tempo without anticipating the middle crotchet? Because that's the one that'll be anticipated. Da, 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 da. A bit of second crotchet. Mm. One to look out for then. Yes. Play it. So that takes us to sections E and F and some very similar thematic material to the opening. Uh, yes, there is nothing new here on the score uh, until we get to the close. Letter F. You've got to judge in letter F the rallentando as opposed to four bars later the allegando. So if that row becomes too extreme, you've then got a very extreme allegando tempo. And a good sound on the last chord. No cornets. Okay, they suddenly drop off. They've played all the way up there. They're playing all the way through it fortissimo, and all of a sudden there's no cornets for the last chord. Also worth rehearsing. Yeah. Where you suddenly got, uh, if you like, middle and bottom band sound for your, for your final chord of the movement. An interesting little composing technique. Yeah, you can rehearse all you like, but it's never going to sound as good without cornets, is it? <laughs> <laughs> well, some so. bands. Um, <laughs> That's as far as I'm going to go on that. <laughs> so, letter G, we have our fugue, a really interesting and uh, exciting musical technique. Could you tell us a little bit about fugue and uh, where it comes from, maybe the, some of the main composers we might associate well, with it? you know, we associate mainly, we think of J.S. Bach, uh, who wrote lots of prose, lots of fugues, he was writing them all the time. And if you want somewhere to go to study the fugue, well, he's, he's the go-to person. That's where every classical composer from his time onwards uh, went to look at the, the structure uh, of the fugue. And this is a good example of, of an academic fugue, uh, where, its, where its structure is clear, uh, cornets, horns, baritone euphonium, bass. You know, there's in four clear sections. If you want to study, if you look at the scores, easy to see who's playing what. Uh, you've got to achieve a semblance of sameness uh, from these fugue entries, uh, albeit 
within different dynamic frameworks. Um, I think, Matthew, the interesting, one interesting thing is the opening tempo of this. I don't know many bands who have started this off at Crotch at 96. I don't even know if I would, or if I have. Mm. I've conducted it a few times. Uh, you don't want to do it go too quick, because you've got to just glance ahead uh, as a conductor, and a final excel which is taking you up to 144, and then 84 minimum, finally. So it's taking you up to 160, 170 marks. That's a big shift from the beginning of a prelude uh, in 96 crotchet that ends up in crotchet somewhere like 168, 172. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's, a big, there's a big bit of work to be done here by, by the conductor to measure this. Um, I wouldn't go far off the 96. I would tend to be around 104, which gives it a little bit more movement. Cornet's got a piano start, horns, flugel, mezzo piano start, baritones, euphonium, mezzo forte start. So there's little lifts happening there as well. You know, so the cornets need to be a little bit more uh, distant, if you like, and it's start. Uh, the horns is given a bit more t uh, dynamic, and as more players join, he's upped the dynamic of the fugue to the mezzo forte, to finally the basses come in at 40. So there's, there's, there's work to be done there uh, as players uh, and conductors. But generally, he's up to tempo to match the score getting more complex or thicker texture. Mm. What do you think it is about this motif used for the fugue that makes it work so well? You're always attached to the tune in this piece right from the very start. You're always attached to the tune Darwals. Da -dee -da 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 -da, right from the very beginning and all the way through you don't lose contact with that mm. and I think probably the best fugues achieve that you're always related you're always attached to the melodic fragments of the melodic theme Great entry here from the the bar before I for trombones and cornets, a little fanfare figure uh, where you've got that big lift into section I to the and I think the loudest part of the piece. I don't think there's been a fortissimo. Oh yeah, there's been one early on, but not a brassy fortissimo. <laughs> there's a fortissimo in the, in the at the end of the prelude, but and a more sonorous fortissimo. Mm. But now we have a more brassy fortissimo with the trumpety sounds, the middle horn sounds um, playing it, uh, the fortissimo. But again, he does that and takes you straight back to the trombones. Bam, 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 bam. Again, you're, so you're not, it never takes you away. Hmm. Um, but we're not still on full melody yet, we're still on melodic fragments. Uh, where the trombones have that job of sonority against the horns and cornet delicate patterns in the background. 
Uh, and also like it where players don't we where parts don't happen for every bar. For example, he cuts the bases out for a couple and brings them in. Uh, one, two, three, and four of I. He has the bases full on for fortissimo. Then he takes the bases out of it. Whereas if you're writing, you're normally thinking, oh, what's the bass part? What's the bass part? <laughs> no, he, he just takes the bass out and gives you trombone, puts the job in middle band, and then goes back to fortissimo with, with full band. I think that's... And he does that on uh, two or three occasions in the, this leading up to section K. And then uh, section J, we have a key change and go into concert D flat major. I yeah, I love the way it plays around with the keys. I mean, a fugue in its academic perception, a prelude and fugue rather, is, is something that's all in the same key. Hmm. Uh, but there is, there's development within it. In this little one here where he, he takes us into a new key at section J, then he takes us later on, about 16 bars later, into a one that you've got to be very careful with. And if there's going to be a wrong note in, a piece, in this piece, it's going to happen here. Bar five and six of K. People forget they're playing in G flat or a D flat. Or even in the trombone, there's been a D flat and then following with an E natural. Yeah, that's that's why if there's a black spot on this piece for an accident, it's bar five and six of K. Bear in mind. Yeah, that's worth a highlight pen uh, for any player. No matter how good you are, how good your memory is, just mark it. And that takes us through to L, where we get more of this episodic stuff happening, still with the same fragment. Bam, 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 bam. Amazing how many times this is used. Oh, it's only a seven and a half minute piece, but I haven't added up. But if you added up how many times that fragment, if you took it out of the piece, there wouldn't be a piece. That's quite incredible, yeah, isn't it? It really is. You know, and it shows the real, real talent of a composer who can keep that working. Mm. You know, I think a bit of in five, you think, how long can you keep that motif going for? Well, the answer is minutes and minutes. Ba, 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 ba. You think, he can't keep that going. Yes, he can. Minutes and minutes and minutes of it. Minutes later, you're still hearing it. And so here we are again. Minutes later, we're still hearing... Bum, 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 bum. Section M as well. How unusual is that? That four bars long. It's a short little section, isn't it? And don't forget the very important uh, triple piano triangle notes as well. A triangle, yes, I'm afraid to tell you, is a musical instrument. And there's a way of hitting it that sounds like a bit of metal... And there's a way of playing it that sounds like a beautiful musical instrument. And that's what's required here. Um, I'd even say to Triangle, um, a step up from three Ps would be fine for me. Careful notice here, Excel and Crescendo, Poco Poco. Not too much too soon would be my, would be my viewpoint. 
uh, in the dynamic. Because if you've got that dynamic here, if you look, you've got a long way to go to the end of this piece. Um, so I think a controlled measure of the, the dynamic through here. Uh, and also a controlled measure of the accelerando. Uh, the next tempo marking is 132 at letter O. So it's still not over quick. Mm. Uh, and then we start to get the scalic uh, movement up towards letter P. And at some point here, you need to decide where you're going to hit, hit your tune the bar. Now the minims give you a good lead for tune the bar because they give you two clear beats. Mm. Bum, 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 bum. One and two. Da, dee, da, 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 da. They give you a clear indication. So I think you choose one of these points. Uh, maybe the bar before P for a little move into two. Or maybe cut the bars into P. So that takes us through into section Q. Once again, we're cranking up the tempo, but quite dramatically dropping the volume in. Uh, yeah, we are, and it's it's not an easy thing to do, but um, it gives you a little respite before coming on to the end section. Uh, it's a very dramatic. Um, when you think it's right down to piano, mezzo piano, and then four bar, four bars later, uh, there's a fortissimo. Hmm. But even that, though, I don't want it, we don't want it to sound like the final fortissimo. Hmm. There's different ways of approaching a fortissimo. As I said earlier, there's the sonorous one, there's the full-blooded one, and there's the, you know, there's the one that heads beyond. But at this point, we just want a good full sound from the band. Hmm. Uh, and, but good, clear articulation from cornets and horns and the answering on baritone euphonium basses to be as articulate as it is on the upper band sounds. Not so easy to get it down the bottom end of the band. But um, it's a good thing to aim for, to get it as good as you're hearing it, the clarity from top end of the band and bottom end of the band. be able to talk us through the way that this music sort of wraps itself up with this very grandiose um, yeah yeah I think you've you just described it it's, it's got its own you know grandiose but we still don't have bum 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 da 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 we still don't have that we still have it in sections you know you can't sing along <laughs> <laughs> not going to be heard if you do no. so. <laughs> and now we're heading towards the end of the piece uh, letter S a nice drop in dynamic here Underplay the mezzo forty for for better effect, you know. Um, we're sometimes not good at that, and also the the whole band, the effect of a whole band dropping dynamic is fantastic. If it happens, it only needs two or three players not to do that, and you you haven't got the effect, mm-hmm. you know. So I would say underplay that mezzo forty. One, it gives you resting time. Yes, yeah. Uh, as a, as a player, when you as managing the piece. Uh, two, it gives the listener a great contrast, and it just gives you that bit of drama. Right? Drama's not always found in the loudest dynamics. I know we think it is. 
but it's sometimes often found in the quieter dynamics, especially ones that are subito and happen uniformly throughout a band. So I think underplay that. Don't, again, not too much too soon, rising up to the the, the fortissimo uh, ending of the band here. And a really interesting last chord. Nothing too high, nothing too brash, a very no, earthy no, brown. Um, it's very re- reminiscent of, uh, you know, a triumphal piece, last chord, low cornets. And we tend not to give cornets a low note on a last chord. Hmm. Uh, Eric Ball did it, and there's one or two other examples. And this is a good example of it, where it's just about the fullness of the sonority of the chord. It's not about the brightness of the top B flat even soprano cornet Mm. how many pieces does soprano cornet end up on a low B flat you know if you're writing this now that would not look like that but but again to me it, it references the classical you know almost the organist playing the last chord the organist doesn't look for what's the highest notes I can play yeah What's the most sonorous sound I can get from the band? that deserves really good attention in our, in our repertoire. Mm. Thank you ever so much, Derek, for that insight. Been a pleasure. Thank you, Derek, for that analysis of what I would consider to be a somewhat overlooked work, perhaps. Thank you ever so much for your time and preparation. Now it's time for Arid Island Album. Oh, and new for this season, a jingle. Island. Our guest today is Andrew Dickinson, Principal Horn of the International Staff Band. Andrew Dickinson, thank you ever so much for joining us on Arid Island. Uh, you look as if you've got quite a tan. Yes, it's uh, great to be here. And I'm not yet on the Arid Island, but I have just come back from uh, a couple of weeks in Germany visiting family over Christmas. So maybe that's where I've uh, got the tan from. <laughs> Fantastic, great, and I hope you had a good time. So, we're going to be finding out in a couple of minutes your Arid Island album choice, which I'm sure uh, everyone will be looking forward to, as if people know you, they'll know you're quite a keen bando, which is maybe an understatement. But let's get to know you a little bit first, shall we? You're a principal horn of the International Staff Band and have been for coming up to 15 years. Have you got any highlights from your time in the band? 
Well, yes, many highlights. Uh, I, like, like you say, I've been in the ISB for 15 years. I've been Principal Horn since 2013, I think. Um, so a decent amount of time. Um, quite a few highlights, like we say. The band took part in the Brass Festival at the Royal Northern College of Music a few years ago. And that was a very special weekend for me. We, we performed music by Wilfred Heaton, and Wilfred Heaton is my favourite composer. So playing his music in that setting was a particular highlight for me in my, in my time with the band. Fantastic. That sounds great. And you've also embarked on a new career path recently. Could you tell us a little bit about your new career and how it's going? Certainly. So after, after lockdown, I had the opportunity to have a new direction in my career. I'd done a fair few things beforehand, but I've now joined a, a local company, Seven Trent Water, who are the, the water utility company for, for the Midlands and the wider area. And I've started an apprenticeship of all things uh, in health and safety. So I have a quite a, a varied day-to-day working life, sometimes in, conducting investigations, sometimes visiting wastewater treatment works, which, as you can imagine, smell very nice, um, and working in the office, helping people stay safe. So it's a, a very rewarding job. It's a challenging one, but it's something that I'm uh, starting to really grasp and, and, and enjoy the challenge. Brilliant. Sounds like a very worthwhile and uh, interesting career there. So I hope you uh, aren't going for too many dips in the wastewater pools. No, not quite. Not, and I'm hopefully going to stop anyone else doing the same. Good, good, good. Excellent stuff. Now, I know that you're quite an enthusiast about classic cars as well. So I've got a question. If you had to own money, not an object, one classic car from history... What would it be and why? I am known to tootle around in uh, in classic cars. I I have a, a few which I sh- which I own with my uh, with my family, and I certainly enjoy that. If money was no option, that's a that's that's a difficult one because there's so many fantastic cars and so many cars that I look at and wish I could own or at least drive. I'm probably going to say an old Jaguar because I am a bit of a Jag man. And I'm probably going to say a Jaguar XK150. It's a beautiful car. It looks fantastic. The engine is tremendous. It sounds absolutely incredible. I don't think I'd fit in it, being six foot four, but I'd quite <laughs> like the opportunity to have a try. Excellent stuff. And you've answered my next question, which is going to be how tall are you? So convenient. <laughs> That six foot four when I've had a haircut at the moment it's probably about I'm probably about six foot five. Excellent. All important. Great. So that brings us on to the other all important question. If you were stuck on an arid and deserted island and could take one album with you, what album would it be and why? As everyone says, this is a very difficult question. Um but I believe I would take the ISB CD entitled Partita from the mid-1990s. It's a, a CD which, for me, has a lot of incredible music. There's, the composers featured Les Condon, Trevor Davis, Smetana, Eric Ball, Kevin Norbury, Stephen Buller, Ken Downey, Dudley Bright. They're just class composers. And I think that's something I could listen to over and over and over and over again without getting bored and hearing different things from each and every piece. 
Fantastic. And have you got a favourite or a highlight couple of tracks from the album? Undoubtedly the, the title track, Partita, by Kevin Norbury. I think that's a very underrated piece of music and it's one you don't hear very often, which is a great shame. Kevin Norbury was a, a real craftsman, as, as we know from, from listening to the podcast, which he's featured on a couple of times. Um, it's a piece of music I really think is interesting to listen to. There's so much music in it. There's a gorgeous song, a gorgeous melody in it. It's, it's absolutely sublime. And speaking of sublime, you've then got David Dawes playing Clear Skies. I don't need to say anything else about that. Absolutely not, indeed. Well, thank you, Andrew, for your choice. Great choice, really is. And uh, nice to hear another new album that we haven't heard before. And uh, thank you ever so much for your time and joining us on the island. Uh, you can stay here for the next month and uh, you can then welcome the next guest for us. <laughs> Fantastic. I look forward to it. I'll, uh, I'll get my feet up. <laughs> Enjoy. Thanks again, Andrew. Thank you. Thank you again, Andrew, for your time. And what a terrific choice of album. Now, have you got a dry mouth? Steadily increasing heart rate and sweaty palms? Then you might just be in the band mastermind hot seat. Or another medical condition that you may want to get checked out. Anyway, it's time to welcome back Dudley Bright for Band Mastermind, the first to tackle the quiz in 2023. Dudley Bright, thank you for joining us again for Band Mastermind this time. On a scale of um, 1 to 10, how nervous are you? 10. 10, fantastic. That's what we like to hear. So, just to remind listeners that may be new to Season 4, in Band Mastermind you'll have 1 minute and 30 seconds to answer as many band trivia questions correctly as you can. If you don't know the answers, you can pass, but I'll go back through the answers at the end. So... Dudley Bright, are you ready to play Band Mastermind? Okay. Your time starts now. Which current player in the ISB holds the record for being the longest serving player in the band? Ah, it's not uh, uh, Andrew Justice. It's not, I'm afraid. We'll move on. Wisbeach Citadel is marched by Albert Gay. What was Albert Gay famous for in Wisbeach? Absolutely no idea. No worries. What was the name of Eric Ball's father? No idea. Okay. Uh, What's the name of the recently started New York Staff Band podcast? No idea. I've not seen that yet. I've got to catch up. No worries. Uh, Who wrote the Festival March Salvation Song? Oh, Will Golden. Bill Golden. Correct. True or false, Terry Camsey had more works published in the American Band Journal than the Unity series. I think that's possible. So you're going with true? That is the correct answer. Who is the bandmaster of the USA Western Territorial Band? Um, I'm, uh, uh, um, don't know. Smith? Uh, no. I don't know. Sorry. Okay, we'll move on. Australia has the Noel Jones series. Can you name the other series in Australia named after an Australian composer? Well, would it be Gullidge? Correct. Name the second tune used in James Anderson's march, The Pioneers. No. <laughs> okay. And last question before time runs out is name one of the two pieces uh, by Klaus Osterbeek that is published in the Festival series. No. No, no problem. So, 
I'll just go through the answers so you can kick yourself under the table if you did know some of them. <laughs> so the current member of the ISB that holds the record for being the longest serving player in the band is Nigel Hills. Um, Albert Gay was actually the town mayor of Wisbeach when he wrote the march. Yeah. Uh, the name of Eric Ball's father was Jack. And the name of the New York Stuff Band podcast is Talk of Ages. Um, you were very, very close with the USA Western Territorial Bandmaster, Neil Smith. Neil, yeah. It's on, on the tip of your tongue. Yeah. Uh, and the second tune used in James Anderson's March, The Pioneers, is Oh When the Saints. And the two pieces that are published in the festival series by Klaus Osterby are Prince Lorp, which is number two, and The Land of Glory, which is number 12. I've never heard either of those. <laughs> well, there's some research. <laughs> Go and listen to them now. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> well, rub the pain in. <laughs> Thank you, Dudley, for taking on arguably the hardest brass band trivia challenge in the world. Now it's time for what possibly could be the second most challenging. And this time, it's your turn to answer. New Year, new segment. In Sparsely Scored, we're going to play a short excerpt of a Salvation Army band piece. The catch is, you'll only hear one instrument's part. Each episode will add on one more part of the same piece until somebody is able to identify the piece. If you listen and think you know what the piece is, then send us a direct message on any of our social media pages and we'll reveal in the next episode if anybody has got it correct. It could be one person, could be two, it could be a hundred and two. Might be a long episode though if that's the case. Just make sure not to comment for just everybody to see because that would be too easy. Send us a direct message instead. Anyway, without further ado, here is your Sparsely Scored. Well, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for this episode, but don't worry, we'll be back in one month's time. And if your cravings can't span that long, then make sure to follow us on social media for all the latest bits and bobs. Just search Fully Scored. A few thanks. Thanks to our brilliant guests, Dudley, Derek and Andrew, for giving up your precious time, especially around the festive period. Thanks to our producer, Simon Gash, for putting this together over the busy festive season. Who knew it's possible to carve a turkey in one hand and carve out my audio mistakes with the other? Thank you to Wobplay for hosting our podcast and the associated players to pieces with it. Thank you to the crisp and icy underfoot snap of a frosty towpath that is the band nerds for their help with the band trivia questions. And last but never least, thank you to you, our listener, for joining us once again. That is unless your New Year's resolution was not to listen to podcasts. In which case, well, I guess you're not going to hear this anyway, so it's fine. See you next time. Goodbye, and God bless. Goodbye.